Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk a lot about the thyroid and what it has to do with pregnancy and fertility and postpartum. And we have Aviva Ram with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Referred to as the face of natural medicine in the 21st century by Prevention Magazine and one of the 100 women to watch in wellness by MindBodyGreen and founding member of Yale Integrative Medicine, Aviva Ram is a Yale-trained, board-certified MD, midwife, and herbalist with a specialty in women's health. Her new book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution, provides a groundbreaking blueprint for women to take back their health by understanding the root causes of imbalance. Thank you, Aviva. I am so glad to have a chance to talk with you. So as I mentioned on our Facebook Live a little bit ago, I've been chasing you down for probably a year to get this. So I'm so thrilled to have a chance to chat with you. Thank you. It's so much fun to be here. And it's so much fun to have time to just hang out and talk. I know. I know. You've been super busy with your book. So I want to jump right in and just start to talk about the thyroid, because I think it's something that is really important, but yet I don't think women consider. So what is the significance of thyroid problems regarding fertility and pregnancy and being a new mom? It's a whole world to consider, actually. So when you think about the thyroid, it's this um, butterfly-shaped gland in our neck, just sitting kind of right below and behind that area where the ad or in front of that area where the Adam's apple is. And its entire job is to be aware of how much energy essentially your body has to expend and then expend that energy on all your critical functions like metabolism. And if you're a developing baby brain growth, or if you're an adult brain function and hormonal function. So when for whatever reason, the thyroid is either injured by environmental toxins or impeded, or it's perceiving that we don't have enough energy to spend, it slows down. It kind of goes into an energy crisis and it dials itself back to a lower energy burn level. And so whenever your body is in any state of threat, or toxicity from like an external environmental toxins or overload, overwhelm, exhaustion. Instead of spending energy, your thyroid's going to say, we need to save this for healing and for other functions. And right now is just not a great time for us to be thinking about baby making. 
because baby making is going to take a lot of this woman's energy and she doesn't have that energy to put out right now into the world. So what happens is thyroid function slows down and that in turn slows down your reproductive function. It's going to dial energy away from the, the optimal functioning of fertility, carrying a pregnancy, um, even breast milk production. And then for women who do conceive and do have babies, it can also be a factor in prenatal and postpartum depression. Hmm. You know, being a mom is hard enough. <laughs> like being a new mom, I have four kids, four kids and two grandkids. I've definitely, and do obstetrics and pediatrics. So, you know, and midwifery. I've been around the block around new moms. It's exhausting. There's no other way to put it. And so if you can imagine being a new mom and then having a thyroid problem, it's sort of like I explain it to my patients who have hypothyroidism after the baby's born. It's like you're trying to be a new mom with one hand and push a piano up the hill <laughs> with the other hand. It's like it's so much extra work. And, you know, that prenatal depression can have a huge impact on pregnancy because you're just when you're depressed, you don't take care of yourself as well. You just don't show up as much for the things that need to be done like your appetite's not as good. You might not show up for your prenatal visits. You might not prepare the way you need to. And postpartum depression, it's really hard on mom. It can be really hard on the family. And it can be super hard on mom's connection with new baby, which kind of adds double whammy to mom. She's already depressed. And now she's aware that she's not connecting with her baby and just doesn't have the energy to muster. So it can be a really hard situation. And the statistics are kind of staggering. So in the United States, about 28 million women have a slow-functioning thyroid and are diagnosed with it, but not necessarily treated optimally. At least another 50% have slow-functioning thyroid and just don't know it and have not been diagnosed. Of the women who become pregnant, um, up to 17%, which is not actually a small number, will develop um, Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism in pregnancy, and a lot of those will go on to postpartum. And women who have had slow-functioning thyroid in a past postpartum, after baby's born, have 40 to 60% chance of having it again with the next baby. So it's very overlooked and can have a huge impact on every aspect of not just our fertility, but our enjoyment of our pregnancy and birth experience. Mm -hmm. that, that explains it well. So for those that are really new to even thinking about the thyroid, you described where it was in the function. Can you go really basic and just try, describe the difference between hypothyroid and hyperthyroid? Absolutely. So hypo, anytime you hear that in front of a word, it means small or slow. And hyper means big or fast. So we think of a hyperactive toddler, not diagnosably. I just mean like a toddler. <laughs> no, no, I have, off I have two of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you think of hyperactive, it's like bing, 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 you know, everything's moving fast. When you have a hyper-functioning thyroid, which is actually really common for new moms too, you can have um, difficulty going to sleep because you're super wired. It's like you're on, I don't know, I've never drank a Red Bull, but I can imagine <laughs> it's like drinking three Red Bulls. You just cannot settle down. 
So you can't sleep. You lose a lot of weight. Your appetite is voracious, but you cannot keep on weight. Um, a lot of times women get very loose stools. They're going to the bathroom a lot. And it's, it's usually, interestingly, about half of women who end up with a hypothyroid after baby start out first with hyper. But if you think about it, oh, anxiety is a huge thing. So if you think about the new mom who's like, super energetic and she's lost all her baby weight in two weeks and she's a little bit anxious, she may actually have hyper-functioning thyroid, which is not such a great thing. I think it's really, con- mm-hmm. it's really confusing for, I think, a new mom because hypothyroidism, when they're tired um, or hyper, when they're really active, some of these things could just, ref- women could think, that's just, you know, new motherhood. I'm, I'm tired and, you know, I just had a baby and this is a whole new world. And hyper could be, I'm anxious because I just had a baby. So exactly. it seems like it could be really and I'm hard. not sleeping because my baby's waking me up 18 times a day. And yay, I lost my baby weight fast. What and I'm really hungry be- and I'm really hungry because I'm breastfeeding. And exactly. so it seems like a lot of these signs could be uh, undiagnosed and, and still be very apparent. Exactly. And and usually the hyper is a pretty quick phase and then women either normalize or they go hypo. So usually what I say is, look, if you can explain it, right, if you can explain it and tolerate it, you're probably okay. If you can just sort of say, you know, I'm a new mom, but when I get rest because my partner takes the baby out or I get a babysitter, or, you know, even for an hour, I feel rested and caught up, you know, but if you just can't explain it or if it's persistent, or if it's accompanied by depression, you know, it's one thing to have baby blues at three days postpartum or five days postpartum when your hormones are just going crazy and you've kind of got that euphoria let down. That's normal. But if you're actually feeling like I can't get out of bed or I'm really not wanting to be a mom right now, I mean, we all have those thoughts at moments, but not usually persistently when we have new babies. If you're thinking of hurting yourself in any way, even passively. Like if you're just thinking, yeah, I just wish I wasn't alive right now. Like not if you're actually having a thought of hurting yourself, but even passively, that's not really such a typical new healthy new mom thought, right? I mean, yes, we're tired. Yes, we're cranky. Yes, we might think, whoa, this is so not what I bargained for. But that's different than really feeling like you're not coping. Mm -hmm. And when you're not coping, Um, you know, it's important to have someone to talk to. And sometimes it can just be, look, things were not great in the relationship that you're in and that you have the the person you have the baby with, if there's a partner or if you're single and weren't expecting a baby right then or married and weren't expecting a baby right then, there can be a lot of adjustments. So sometimes just talking it out, getting support and realizing we're not alone is enough. But What I do see is a lot of women struggling with all these emotions and fatigue when they actually do have a medical problem that's very solvable. Another, uh, just a woman just wrote to me yesterday and she said, Dr. Aviva, I am not producing breast milk for my baby. And the doctor just kept saying, oh, it's fine. But my baby was down to um, 10% on the um, baby weight, you know, um, scale. And, um, I was doing everything. She said, I took every herb, you know, every breastfeeding cookie I could eat. And she said, I was not producing milk. And finally I convinced my doctor to check my thyroid and I had Hashimoto's. I had postpartum thyroiditis. And I see this, you know, women just beating themselves up because they can't produce enough milk and trying everything and feeling terrible and guilty and giving formula 
when actually it was a hormonal issue all the time. So I don't, I don't want to pathologize everything and say, oh, there's always a medical problem behind it. But when there is, and it's fixable, it can sure make life a lot different. Same for women who have just, I had a woman who wrote to me also yesterday. Um, I was doing a Facebook live and she had had 10 miscarriages, 10. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Before somebody discovered that she had a thyroid problem. And if anyone's even had one miscarriage, it can feel really heartbreaking. 10 is just like, I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. And then all that time it was a thyroid problem. And once she got that addressed, she was fine. Oh, that's so good to hear. What pregnancy problems are more likely in pregnant hypothyroid women? So the big concern with pregnant, pregnant women and hypothyroidism is that you feel kind of yucky. You know, you're just, it's very hard to enjoy your pregnancy. It's normal to be tired some, but when you're just dragging all the time and especially through all the trimesters, that can make it really miserable for you. And then, you know, there's the associated problems that can happen if you do develop prenatal depression, like not eating well enough, not gaining weight enough, that kind of stuff. But the biggest risk in pregnancy is really for the baby. And the baby's growth and development is 100% dependent on healthy thyroid, including brain development. So we really want to make sure that pregnant mamas, and you know, I was a home birth midwife for 20 something years. I had my four kids at home, three of them, hope nobody judges, but three of them as unattended home births. And, um, you know, so I'm very low on the intervention scale. I'm not about everyone getting a bazillion tests, but basic prenatal testing, in my opinion, should always include a TSH to check thyroid function and a TPO to check for antibodies because you can catch this really early and make sure baby's getting everything he or she needs. And most babies will, no matter what, human development is incredibly resilient, but to optimize our baby's brain development, it's such a simple thing to check and address. Do most doctors and midwives do those checks, do those key tests? They don't. There's actually a pretty significant amount of controversy going on in that endocrinologists actually think that it should be done routinely, whereas OB-GYNs and midwives don't consistently do it routinely. So it's um, kind of a, it dependent on who you're seeing. There's no sort of standard for it being done routinely in pregnant mamas. Also, the results can be a little confusing. TSH is stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. And it's the main test that's usually done because it's the most sensitive. It's the most likely to pick up a problem the earliest, except in pregnancy. In pregnancy, the test that's most likely to pick up a problem early is called TPO. It's an antibody. And when it's elevated in pregnancy, it means you're higher risk for developing Hashimoto's in pregnancy and way higher risk for developing it postpartum. Also, a lot of people don't know how to interpret the TSH in the first trimester because it looks to the body a lot like HCG, which is the hormone we start to produce in higher amounts in pregnancy. So it can make it look like a woman has hyperthyroid when she doesn't. So that's why the TPO is even that much more important. So would a woman go to her, either her OB or her midwife and ask for this? And then who's going to be able to read the results if it's 
not something they're used to doing and there could be some fallacy in the in the results. Yeah, if they check a TPO, but also even if they do check a TSH, any doctor, even if they don't know what the standard numbers should be, right, can look those up online. So they're readily available. So a woman not, could say... Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. So she could go to her doctor and say, all right, I just listened to this podcast. I just read Aviva's book. I am pregnant. I want to check these out. They would likely do these tests. I mean, I would find it surprising if somebody declined a pregnant woman test because nobody wants to be the doctor who later found out there was a problem and it's noted that the pregnant woman. (laughs) Yeah, that's just pregnancy and OB. There's just not a lot of room for oops. So I think if a woman pressed hard enough um, and it's standard enough to do it, that um, getting the TSH would be an easy get. But just asking for the TPO, it may be a little more challenging, but it's definitely one of those times worth advocating for yourself. And another thing is that there are really good clinical studies looking at women who have this elevated TPO. It's an antibody that's actually elevated. And um, they take 200 milligrams of selenium every day has been shown in good medical studies to reduce that antibody and reduce her risk of going on to develop Hashimoto's in pregnancy and postpartum. So such a simple, totally safe mineral can be taken to just turn this whole situation around. If she actually has Hashimoto's, then because baby's so dependent on healthy thyroid functioning, that is a time when it is important to start thyroid hormone supplement. So thyroid medication, as we usually call it. So according to the 2012 Endocrine Society guidelines, the hormone replacement medication dose usually needs to be increased in pregnancy. And I saw up to 30%. What changes in medication dosage do you recommend? So that's exactly right. So if a woman who is already known to have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, which they're the same Basically, they're the same functioning in the body, but Hashimoto specifically refers to an autoimmune form of Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism. You can have non-autoimmune hypothyroidism as well. So um, if she's already on thyroid medication, then she needs to usually increase that by 30 to 50%. That's something that she'd want to do with her family doctor, her midwife, or her OB rather than just self-medicating the increase because you want to get checked to make sure you're at a healthy level. Um, and usually you check about six weeks after you increase it. If she um, is not already on a thyroid medication, then usually you would start at a higher dose than would typically be started at. Hmm. So what are the and, thyroid hormone replacement medications that a woman could use during pregnancy? Well, there are quite a number of thyroid medications that are very effective, Armour Thyroid, Nature Thyroid, but During pregnancy, it's the one time that I really do recommend using Synthroid, which is the synthetic kind, which may sound sort of antithetical to me because, you know, I'm known as Miss Natural Pregnancy. But um, the bottom line is it's really the most standardized form of dosing 
but also most OBs and most midwives and most family doctors are going to have no idea how to dose the other medications and they will know how to dose the Synthroid. So sort of your safest bet to getting the most accurate dose and having your provider know how to handle it is the Synthroid. Oh, interesting. Oh, good. All right. So as a MD and a midwife, how do you treat thyroid problems in pregnancy? So during pregnancy, I always want to look at what's going on. So you can have this non-autoimmune Hashimoto, sorry, non-autoimmune hypothyroidism, and that can be due to a number of factors. Most commonly, it's low iodine. And so making sure a pregnant woman is getting enough iodine, she really needs about 250. Most prenatal vitamins will provide that amount. So making sure she's getting a prenatal or getting that has the iodine and I do recommend a prenatal vitamin. Um, and so that's the first thing looking at any triggers that are known to be related to hypothyroidism. For example, does she have a high mercury level? Now it's hard to check mercury in pregnancy because it requires some specific testing that we can't do in pregnancy, but has she been eating sushi a lot? Um, has she, does she eat high mercury fish? taking those out of the diet if she has been. And it's interesting. There was a study done looking at Asian women in New York City who ate sushi as a regular part of their diet. And 50% of them had mercury levels attributed to the fish um, way higher than is considered acceptable, even by federal standards. So just taking the fish, tuna, any high mercury fish, and you can learn about those by going to the Monterey Bay Aquarium website. And there's a whole list of which fish are high mercury, which fish are moderate, and which are the lowest. Pregnant women should only eat the lowest. We do know mercury can interfere with thyroid function. The other thing is looking at some of the causes of Hashimoto's that we can work with during pregnancy. Um, You know, it's limited what we can do with supplements that we know are safe, for example, during pregnancy, but we can check for gluten intolerance or just have a woman go totally gluten-free. One of the easiest turnarounds for Hashimoto's that we have is getting a woman who's gluten intolerant or truly celiac off of gluten. And it's interesting you know, celiac itself is one of the known causes of fertility problems, miscarriage. Um, and it's a lot of women have no idea. Most obstetricians have no idea, but there's good solid research on that. And so taking gluten out altogether. And for a lot of women, actually, if they're sensitive to dairy, because for about 50% of people, dairy is inflammatory. I'll often take dairy out um, if she has enough other things that she's willing to eat in her diet to get calcium and protein. But there are lots of other sources. And then um, the selenium is something I always add in because of the really, really solid, even conventional medical data on that really being a big game changer for women with Hashimoto's during pregnancy. And then making sure that she's getting, um, as I mentioned earlier, iodine. With Hashimoto's, it's interesting. A lot of women with Hashimoto's will say, when I take iodine, I get a flare. But in pregnancy, it is still really important to make sure she's getting the baseline amount. And then um, starting the appropriate thyroid medication if she truly has numbers that suggest that that's important. The rest of it is really making sure that she is well-supported after the baby, because we know that her risk of developing postpartum depression is so great. So, you know, with someone who 
already had Hashimoto's in pregnancy, I'd be really wanting to keep a much closer connection with her if she is starting to have symptoms of postpartum depression. So we can catch it early and, and help her have a much less, not less miserable, but help her have a fabulous new mommy experience. So then how would you treat the thyroid problem with a new mom as opposed to pregnancy? I'm guessing the treatments may differ. Yeah. So if she's a new mom who already had the thyroid problem before pregnancy or during pregnancy, then you just stay on the medication, the supplement, uh, thyroid hormone supplement, and you just reduce back to a lesser dose. So whatever you increased by, you slowly decrease back to, you don't want to do it fast because then you can just suddenly feel just terrible. So cut, you know, 25%, cut back that dose over a few weeks if she's a new mom and starting to have symptoms of hyperthyroid, so she's agitated, not sleeping, losing a lot of weight fast, crazy appetite, still losing weight, those loose stools, anything like that, then I will often not do anything because medically it's not indicated to treat. Usually medically you just give some medications to control the symptoms. I don't usually recommend those medications. That's where I'll use herbs like motherwort and lemon balm, which do the same things as the medications. They're controlling the anxiety, that fast heart rate that can happen and helping a woman sleep because that hyperthyroidism in the new mom will usually just burn itself out. The risk is, is that it burns itself out into hypo thyroid problems. And here's a really tricky thing that's super important for women to no. If you are a new mom and you have hyper and all of a sudden you feel really, really exhausted and you don't feel well and you know, you're just struggling with a lot of the symptoms that I talked about, but you go in to get your numbers checked. If you think about it, the numbers are going from hyper to hypo numbers. Somewhere along the line, they're going to cross the normal range, right? They're going from too high to too low. So in that process, they cross over that middle. If you go and get your labs checked during that time, you are going to look like you have completely normal thyroid labs. And so this entire thing will be missed. And that's another re really important reason to get that TPO checked. Because if you just check that TSH, your doctor's going to say, you're fine. It's just that you're a new mom, you were stressed, and now you're tired. And that may be the case, but it also may not be the case. So that's really important to check the TPO. So would for, you advocate for a woman if, say, a month passes or even a couple of weeks and she got the results, everything's fine, that she shows up at her doctor again and say, I'd really like to be retested? Absolutely. Unequivocally. And um, you want to make sure to give it a couple of few weeks at least because they may still be trending down. So you, again, you don't want a second normal set of results, but that TPO probably won't be normal. And that's the, that's the clincher right there. If she's a new mom and about 50% of new moms will just start right out with hypo, they won't go through the hyper or if they did, they just didn't really notice it. If she's a new mom with hypo, then it totally depends. The treatment totally depends on how severe her symptoms are and how much they're impacting her quality of life. Most women who develop hypo, within a year, the symptoms will resolve themselves without any medication or without any treatment at all. So if she's coping just fine and she doesn't mind maybe the baby weight coming off a little slower, she's producing plenty of breast milk, she's sleeping well, I mean, as well as a new mom sleeps, all of that, um, right, um, then I wouldn't necessarily treat. But if it's impacting her quality of life, she is not happy. She's sad. She's not enjoying the baby. 
Um, she's really struggling to lose the baby weight and it's having an impact on her psychoemotionally. Um, you know, any, anything that's really affecting her, then I personally feel like it's worth it to start the thyroid supplement hormone because who wants to have a miserable experience as a new mom? It's just, it's hard enough without, without that double whammy. So it's really worth it to not have a miserable postpartum. It's hard enough being a new mom without that double whammy. And thyroid supplement hormone isn't something that's externally doing something to your body, like a drug that lowers your blood pressure or a drug that makes you fall asleep when you're not tired. It's actually just supplementing what your body should be producing that right now it's not and you need. So it would be like if you were low in vitamin D and your body can't produce vitamin D, it's just like taking vitamin D. In fact, vitamin D is a hormone it's just a different hormone than these are, than this one is. So it's really worth it. And contrary to rumors or myths, taking the thyroid supplement hormone does not make your thyroid stop producing it. You can go off of the medication anytime your body is resuming its normal production. So you're not stuck on it for life. I think uh, what you were saying is really important because a lot of women are very vigilant about what they ingest, put in their body during postpartum, well, during pregnancy and especially yeah. breastfeeding. So it's good to hear that taking these replacements, it's not something that we have to be worried about. It's not a medication in the fact that we can think we're adding something that's foreign. We're just bringing back something that was uh, diminished. Is that correct? Exactly. And in the postpartum, it's totally fine to start with one of the natural products. You don't have to start with the synthetic because that's the baby's out and the baby's brain development is dependent on other things now, not how much thyroid hormone you're making while the baby's in your belly. So um, you can start with armor. That's the, the one I usually would start with in a new mom. Wonderful. I want to talk a little about breastfeeding. So I know breastfeeding issues include low milk supply, which are common with hypothyroid women. Uh, what are some of your, your recommendations for that? Well, the first thing is just the basics, making sure baby's latches, you know, appropriate mom has good emotional support for herself, for baby, for other children, for the household, um, making sure she's getting enough fluids, enough carbs. So many women carb restrict now and you have to get good carbs to make good breast milk. You know, in every traditional culture, the first thing a new mom is given is a congee or a grain soup or barley stew. And we need those carbs to produce the, all the substrates we need to, to make really good breast milk, making sure she's getting enough essential fats in her diet, making sure that she's getting enough sleep. Now, obviously new moms are going to get interrupted sleep. Thankfully, oxytocin helps balance some of the effects of stress hormone. But if you're super, super stressed out, um, and you're not getting good support and not getting enough rest, that in itself can interfere with your breast milk production. Any woman who's had breast reduction surgery or breast augmentation surgery, of course, that's important to think about. Um, is that for that particular woman? It doesn't necessarily 100% have to impact, but it can impact. Same with nipple piercing. Did it cause any scarring that maybe is affecting one side or the other or both? And then um, is there any developmental issue for the mom that prevented a adequate breast gland production? So, you know, looking at the social things, the emotional things, the nutritional pieces of everything, and then the actual 
what's going on with that mom's body. And then of course, checking the thyroid, all super important. Can you talk a and little bit? The herbs. Oh, sorry. Can you talk oh, a no, little no, bit about the nutrition? Cause you said carbs and my ears perked up. Um, but you know, I've studied a lot of nutrition, so I, I get the carbs you're talking about, but can you clarify what kind of carbs you're talking? You're not yes, talking. I am not talking about donuts <laughs> and pizza crust here from, from Pizza Hut. So carbs are a really important energy source, and it's super interesting. In pregnancy, we actually do not need very many more calories at all when we're pregnant, unless you're carrying twins or you're a teenager or something. But for the average adult woman who's carrying one baby – you only actually need 300 more calories a day and only in the third trimester than you did before you were pregnant. But when you are breastfeeding, you require actually as many as 500 more calories a day. And meat doesn't give us that many calories. Vegetables don't give us very many calories. Where we actually get our calories that produce a lot of energy are from fat. And we need really good quality fats because that is so important for our nervous system, our hair, our skin, our cells, everything. And we need good quality carbohydrates. So carbohydrates are long-chain sugars, not short-chain sugars. Short-chain sugars are what we get from things like processed sugar or even honey maple syrup, which are fine small amounts, but not as our main energy source. Where we get really good carbs are whole grains like quinoa and brown rice and millet, for example, and the starchy vegetables. So especially sweet potatoes and winter squashes. Those are great sources. And getting at least a, some carb source at lunch and maybe two at dinner is often enough for most women. But that is really important while we're breastfeeding. It also actually helps to keep our cortisol levels normal. And when we have normal cortisol level, levels, we sleep better. Our melatonin rises up at night, so we tend to be more rested. And even if we're not getting great sleep, we're still doing that good brain detoxification at night. Um, our weight balances out easier when our cortisol is healthier and we're less you know, we have more resilience. We're less stressed out. So it's super important. Can you clarify healthy fats? Yes. Um, anything that is basically not a processed or hydrogenated fat. So, I mean, all fats are processed to some extent, right? We have to churn butter, but what I Avocado, mean is... Avocado, that's not processed. That's true. It's not processed. Or if you just one of my favorites. <laughs> I pretty much always process mine into guacamole. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess it is a little processed <laughs> that way. Oh my gosh. So yeah, avocado, totally not processed. Actually eating coconut meat is good, is a good non-processed fat, but and olive oil, tasty. all of those are, are you know, healthy and they're not, not really processed. They're just naturally processed to get them from the fruit to the oil or the nut to the oil. So, um, extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, butter or ghee. Um, butter, I really recommend organic uh, because animal fats hold so many environmental toxins. So that is worth spending the extra money on. Avocado, um, walnuts, almonds, pecans are fabulous sources, not just of fats, but of protein and antioxidants. Um, yeah, those are my big ones right you there. You kind of just described my pantry. I eat walnuts <laughs> as my as my go-to snack there, especially with a little yogurt. So since we're kind of yeah, on the whole so new... I know, it's one of my favorites with a little honey on top. Since yeah. we're talking nutrition, let's start to look at from a functional nutrition perspective, what, recommend, what recommendations can you talk about for fertility? Oh, yeah, great. So um, there are some really nice studies actually looking very specifically at what nutritional 
or what dietary approach is most beneficial for fertility. Now, to take a step back, whenever I have a woman come to my practice for a fertility consultation, I always look at the whole woman. You know, what is going on in her particular life and in her particular situation so that I'm not making just sort of um, standardized recommendations. They're, they're fairly individualized. But we do know that... Um, Really extensive research done by Jorge Chavarro and Walter Willett has unequivocally shown that women who eat a Mediterranean-style diet have the best chances of getting pregnant easily and naturally without intervention. And women who have struggled with fertility adopting a Mediterranean-style diet have the best chances of, of, of getting pregnant. So what does that look like? Mediterranean-style diet nowadays is not really what we're talking about. We're really talking about a traditional kind of truly post-war, post-World War II Mediterranean diet when people were having to eat a lot of local foods, a lot of local greens, local produce, simple um, small amounts of meat, small amounts of local what would have been organic dairy. Uh, interestingly, uh, women who eat whole fat dairy are more likely to conceive than women who eat low fat dairy. So full fat dairy, if you do eat dairy, super important, uh, nuts and seeds, good quality oils and small amounts of whole grains and legumes. That is sort of a classic Mediterranean diet. And that is, is really what we know to be the most anti-inflammatory way of eating. And it's probably why the Mediterranean diet is not only beneficial for women struggling with fertility, but insulin resistance, diabetes, preventing gestational diabetes, so important. Um, even cognitive problems like brain fog, but also more serious including dementia, have all been shown to be able to be prevented or even diabetes and heart disease reversed with this way of eating. So I always work toward that. So the Mediterranean diet is the only diet that's also been shown to not only help with fertility, but prevent and also reverse heart disease, diabetes. It can prevent and even reverse gestational diabetes, which is so important because that can have not only an immediate, but also a lifelong impact on baby's metabolism and heart health. Super interesting. Um, so I always work toward that. Mediterranean style diet, but then I modify it for individual women. So if a woman is gluten intolerant, obviously we're not going to have her eating pasta, even though that's classic in Mediterranean, at least, you know, in Italy, for example, if she doesn't tolerate dairy well at all, we'll take the dairy out. If she has an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's, we might take it easy on the nuts if that seems to be aggravating for her. And that's the beautiful thing about this Mediterranean style of eating is that you can modify it for everything from autoimmune paleo to vegan or vegetarian. I love work looking at diet and seeing how it can help a body. I think that's kind of the foundation of where we should go to before, for my opinion, before jumping on medication. So I love hearing yeah, that. That's where you look to. Absolutely. I mean, in my practice, when I think about, so I think of, um, you know, if you will, any kind of intervention on a scale of zero to 10, 10 would be things like surgery. Eight would be something like medication or something. I always start at zero, which is what are the simplest things we can do to shift our mindset and shift our environment? What are the things we can do to just basically find more inner peace? And it can be as simple as taking a hot bath with some Epsom salts and lavender before bed, which is safe 
for pregnant women too. It's great for pregnant women, especially if they get those calf cramps, you know, oh, yeah. and oh, they're yeah. having you know, some preterm contractions. I'm all about the Epsom salt bath, yeah. edema. Yeah. It's kind of like my go-to if a woman has a problem, like Epsom salt bath, just not too hot. It. It's so funny. It would have, it's what my great grandmother would have recommended too, which is just <laughs> hilarious. Every time I open, you know, if I happen to be somewhere where there's like a carton of Epsom salts, I'm like, ah, I always think of my great grandmother. <laughs> And um, she was an herbalist, actually, which was interesting. I didn't know that until my 20s. But um, yeah, so I love that. And then I always go to food. You know, food is next. And then I work my way up toward herbs and supplements, right? Because there's so much we can do with food first. And then the herbs and supplements, then I start to think, okay, if we're still not getting where we need to get, that's when we start to think about, do we need a medication? You know, as I said, pregnancy and Hashimoto's or pregnancy and hypothyroidism is kind of an exception because the baby's brain development really depends on mom having healthy thyroid function. So that is a time when I would just sort of jump jump ahead and say, okay, we're going to do all these other things, but let's get this started now. Mm-hmm. But I agree. Food is, and for me in my own life, food is always first. I mean, if I feel like I'm, you know, working on this book, I mean, the things that I paid most attention to were keeping my diet really healthy getting good sleep, making sure I had some time in nature and time to just laugh and play with, um, you know, if I ever feel like, you know, I've been traveling a lot and running on the road and teaching and I feel like I'm getting a little scratchy throat or cold. I always, I just change my diet first. I don't even just start taking supplements. I just alter my diet a little bit. That's great. Yeah. That really resonates with the way I function. So I'm thrilled to hear that. I wanted to, before we start to uh, tie up, I want to just talk a little bit, kind of jumping back to postpartum, because I know we jumped to fertility because I got excited about the nutrition talk. Um, But postpartum can be a challenging time for women with hypothyroidism. So what tips do you have for women with this who are struggling with postpartum issues like breastfeeding and exhaustion and anxiety and depression? So it's the same for all women, except that you probably need to be a little more aware that there may be a medical underlying issue that you can fix with thyroid hormone. So, but for all women, all women, we need support. We need to be able to ask for help. This is definitely not the time to be leaning in and trying to do everything and be superwoman or wonder woman. So even before you have baby if you can have a plan for what you're going to be doing for food, get your friends together in your community and all do a round robin on food trees. You know, have your friends bring you food. And, you know, I always say, have your friends bring you food, but there's the one rule that it, just because they bring you food doesn't mean they get to come in and get a sneak peek and, and hold the baby, right? It's bring the food, knock on the door, put it on the doorstep. Really honor a, a really good six-week period of time or even longer. I mean, I really honestly think it's like that first eight months. We have to be so patient with ourselves. If you're a woman who is used to being on the go all the time and, you know, managing a million things at once and, you know, writing books and running a corporation and running a yoga program, whatever it is, that's your thing. It's, it's, your baby's not always going to cooperate. Your sleep is not always going to be aligned with what your needs are. So really be patient with yourself with the ebbs and flows of productivity during that time build in some self-care. It's so easy. I hear it all the time. And I know I did this myself too as a young mom. And now it's in hindsight that I can be a better advocate in some ways for other, for, for new young new moms, which is build in self-care. I promise you, your baby will not melt if you let a high school student or let your mother-in-law or let somebody watch the baby for an hour while you go take 
a really nice hot bath and the replenishment that you get will make you such a better mom and happier mom. So it's, I would say, you know, build in support, take time for self-care and be incredibly patient with yourself. It's going to make it so much easier. I completely, completely agree with that. I just was speaking with um, a postpartum doula and she said a lot of the same things. And as a mom myself of two young kids, I wish I had, especially with my first, uh, given myself a little bit more space, you know, not jump back in. Yeah. It's a, it's a full-time job. It really is. And, you know, I used to jokingly say that as a mom, I always slept with one eye open. And I, I think we do, we are, we, our physiology is changed to sort of be really tuned into this other little person. And that does take energy. And I think that it's so easy to beat ourselves up. You know, as women, we are so hard on ourselves. And my guess is that most of the women who are listening to us talk right now and the two of us have some (laughs) element of perfectionism because high achieving women tend to do that. And we beat ourselves up for being tired, but we forget that we're tired for a reason. And we're like, well, why am I so tired? What? I should be, I should be, I should be, I should be able to do this. I should be able to do that. We should on ourselves all day long. Mm-hmm. And we actually have to cut ourselves slack. Yeah. The other day I actually said to myself, I'm like, I think I'm working a little too much. I need to give myself a couple hours off. And I did. But that's really happen. great that you did. Well, I mean, I, mean, so I was exhausted <laughs> and, and it was kind of like one of the, few, and when my, when I was talking to my manager at the studio, she's like, yeah, I've never heard you say that. So the fact that you're actually acknowledging that probably means you need to dial it back. So, and I think yes. it's, I don't think I'm alone in that, that situation, you know, realizing, you know, you know I've been running yeah, too much. When I was pregnant with my fourth, I was homeschooling and running my midwifery practice and I had just written a book. And I was really needing an afternoon nap. And my youngest at that time wasn't even quite two. So here I am pregnant, four kids at home, three kids at home, the youngest not quite two. And I lived way out in the country and we didn't have a television. My oldest was nine at the time. And we just, we, we were a non-TV household talking to one of my midwifery clients, herself, the mom of four kids. And she said, you know, Aviva, sometimes in life you make a choice, get a TV or kill a kid. I just, I, she was this very proper Southern woman and I just practically fell off my chair laughing. But the practical wisdom that she offered was so great. And we set these really high standards, especially as natural moms, you know, we're cooking all our kids food. We're making our own baby food. I mean, goodness gracious, I was making my own kids clothes and I was homeschooling and had this really strong attitude that I wasn't going to have a TV or I wasn't going to have a babysitter come over, you know, and it it was unnecessarily self-imposed stress. And yes, we got a TV. We didn't have any reception. So we watched (laughs) movies, but getting that hour nap a day made such a huge difference in my health. Oh yeah. I've been known to take little naps while Curious George is on PBS. So (laughs) not that I'm saying, you know, overindulge in the TV, but sometimes it's what keeps me sane. My kids used to watch because, uh, you know, I'm sort of dating myself, but because my youngest is 22 and my oldest is 31. But um, my kids used to watch that show. They would watch Wishbone and Reading Rainbow. 
So those, I felt like those songs were always playing in my head. <laughs> yeah, I get the Curious George song in my head. Yeah. So I want to find out where people can find you because you've got amazing information and really just vast knowledge that I think a lot of our listeners can relate to. So we already talked about on the Facebook Live that you'll be doing an event, although by the time this airs, it's going to be passed, but you're doing an event with Gabby Bernstein. But where else can people find you? Tell us about your website, your books, just... Yeah. So easiest place to find me is at my website, avivaram.com. You can find out specifically about the new book at avivaram.com forward slash book bonus. And it's called book bonus because there's just some really gorgeous extra gifts over there for women who get the book. Um, And then to find out about my other books, in fact, my favorite book that I've ever written is my postpartum book. It's naturally natural health after birth. And of all my books, I just, I love that book. And, um, I feel like postpartum care is so under emphasized, but you can find out about my books just by going to avivaram.com. You'll see a drop down tab that says books and you can find a whole page about them. Well, maybe I can hunt you down again for another podcast specifically about your postpartum book. Cause I think yes. that's, you know, I, it took me a year, but I'm, I'm ready to get you back again for another. <laughs> now um, I'm free. I've got a life again. <laughs> like the book is I'm done. I'm postpartum on my book. Perfect. So I will definitely get you to talk about that one because I think that this is great. I love the thyroid information um, for pregnancy, fertility, and postpartum. I'd love to have more of a chat about some of that stuff in your postpartum books. I think a lot of people could relate to that. Oh, there's so much we can talk about. So many wonderful traditional practices that we can bring into modern times that I wouldn't say make being a new mom easy because nothing makes it easy, but certainly makes it a much more nourished time and and makes it easier than it has to be. I love that. And that's what we're going to have to talk about. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to put all of this in the show notes as well as your social media stuff. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to, I know. I'm so glad we had finally had a chance to chat. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. All right. Have a wonderful day, Aviva. Take care. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.